Several years ago, I was invited to go speak at a church, and uh, while I was there, I gave an illustration about a, about a man who I knew, who's part of my life, who had uh, lived the life of luxury for a long time. But most of the reason he lived that life of luxury was due to some illegal acts that he had committed over the course of his life. And eventually it caught up with him. He was arrested, he went to trial, and he was convicted, and he went to the penitentiary. And in the process, he lost everything. He lost his wife, his marriage, he lost his kids, basically, the relationship with them. He lost his house, uh, all the buildings, all the businesses. He lost his cars, he had several cars. He lost everything, lost everything. And I shared about how God had used this guy to exemplify God's grace. I was just talking about how this guy was an example of God's redemptive power. And in the process, I talked about how God had, since being released from prison, he had gone into ministry and was now being used by, uh, by God to advance the kingdom of God. And it was almost, uh, it was almost I don't want to say a throwaway line, but a, a, an extra little tidbit of God's blessing in this guy's life. I talked about how he had just recently remarried. After years of being single, he thought he'd never marry again, and God brought this precious woman into his life. And I just shared that. It wasn't relevant to the topic, but it was just another example of God's blessing. And when the service was over, this young minister pulled me aside and began to lecture me on how my views on divorce and remarriage were completely unbiblical. And I was thinking, am I being punked? You know, is this real? Um, and then he gave me a copy of his book that he had written on this very subject, which had been photocopied on a photocopier and laminated. Technically, it's just a glorified pamphlet. You could tell where I was coming from. I couldn't believe this guy. And he, he seemed to denigrate this friend of mine as though his life had no value or, you know, it was minimized because of this remarriage now. How, God could, how could God use that person? This preacher's view on divorce and remarriage was so narrow that I could tell that the story I had told in that message had created a tremendous amount of discomfort for him. And he wanted to share it with me. That was fine. I wonder if you've ever seen anything or experienced anything quite like that. I imagine most of us probably have. Maybe you've even been the victim of that, where a religious person comes and they interpret a certain text in Scripture in such a way that they use it, and in the process they withhold compassion, or even worse, they actually weaponize it, and they use it to, to mistreat or even hurt others. I wonder if you've ever been on the receiving end of that. Maybe some of you have. Maybe some of you have been on the delivery side of that. You're the one putting the guilt out. We're in part three of this series called Eyewitness. Testimony of someone who is there. And we're tracking along the gospel with the gospel writer John, who is on a journey with Jesus, and he records this, this journey. And now most of us, 
Most of us probably have been here the last couple of weeks, but if you haven't, one thing you need to know about John is he does not follow Jesus. He is not a disciple of Jesus because of faith alone. John is all in with Jesus because of what he's experienced, what he saw and what he heard. And because of that, he concluded that Jesus was the Messiah, the one the prophets had been predicting for hundreds and hundreds of years. And as evidence that he saw led him to the place where he put his faith and full confidence in Jesus as his Savior. John's gospel is a record of what he saw, what he experienced. So as an old man, he's writing this down. All of his contemporaries are gone. They're dead. They've been executed. They've been martyred for the cause of Christ. He's the only one, most likely, still alive. And he tells us about this, these sweet moments, these tender moments, these real relevant moments that he's had with Jesus over the course of his journey. But John doesn't just give us the story so that we have information, so that we're informed. Not at all. John wrote at the end of his gospel to tell us why he wrote the things that he wrote. This is is in John, the 20th chapter, verses 30 and 31. John performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. In other words, the sequence that brought John to the point that he believed Jesus was who he claimed to be is the very same sequence he's going to lay out for us in the Gospel of John. He wanted us to know the evidence that he saw so that we too might be convinced and believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Now John records this account, this entire text, around seven events. These seven events literally served as seven signs. Signs are things that point you to something. And that's what, Jesus, that's what John used these events in Jesus' life to do, to point to something. Jesus' miracles weren't random acts of kindness. They pointed to something. Specifically, they pointed to who Jesus claimed to be because Jesus made some incredible claims about himself. In fact, in fact, umbrella of mercy here for a second, we would call him a crazy liar if there wasn't evidence to back up the very claims that he made. And at the end of John's gospel, clearly all the signs seem to point to this uniqueness of Jesus. And that's why John arrived at the conclusion that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the Son of God. It's like John was saying, if this is what convinced me, and it did. So I want to share it with you with hopes that it will convince you as well. So today we're going to look at the third sign. It's found in John, the fifth chapter, if you want to turn there and hold that in readiness. John, as you remember, in the first couple chapters, talks about Jesus and his disciples going north of Jerusalem. They went up just to the west of the Sea of Galilee in a town called Cana, and that's where we see the first sign. He turned the water into wine. But now he's making his way back, and this is all going to transpire. This chapter 5 is taking place in Jerusalem. 
So we pick it up in verse 1. This is what we read. Sometime later, because it took probably five or six days for him to get back to Jerusalem from Cana, sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. Verse 2. Now there is in Jerusalem, near the Sheep Gate, a pool, which in Aramaic is called Bethesda, and which is surrounded by five covered colonnades. John has given us a lot of detail you're going to find through this entire narrative. And the reason he does is because as he's remembering, he was there. And so he's recalling these details, and he puts those in there that give us a little sense that he knows what he's talking about. Verse 3, it says, There, here a great number of disabled people used to lie. He's talking about this pool of Bethesda. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. These are some of the most desperate people in all of the city of Jerusalem. They had suffered from significant infirmities, some of them for decades. And they are there at the side of this pool looking for a miracle, hoping that they'll receive a miracle. Now you need to understand, in ancient times, doctors were extremely scarce. They didn't know very much. They were, there weren't many of them, and they weren't well-educated, and there was a reason for that. Doctors had difficulty learning because for a long time, Rome had a law that said you cannot examine a dead body. They could only look at living bodies. Those were the only people you could examine were living bodies. So imagine doctors try to get to a person who's dying right before they die so they can examine them, right? And then once they die, you know, hands off. Can you imagine living in a world like that where the people who you're turning to for your health care have to, have to learn by doing these pre-autopsies right before death? It's difficult. I know during a, an election year, we talk about health care a lot, and I know some of us wish our health care was better, but I have to tell you, and this is not a political statement, but thank, you should thank God you don't live in the first century because their health care was terrible. Let me explain that. The two options you had in the two plans. Number one, you could have a doctor. Doctors were scarce and they were scary because there weren't many of them, but the ones that did exist didn't know much. So they were practicing on you kind of hit and miss. And only the wealthy had access to doctors. The rest, they seemed to depend on temples and superstition for their health care. Many, many people were superstitious. And you'll see in this text that that was a prominent part of this story. So what they would do is they would go to the pagan temples thinking that maybe the gods would smile on them, that they would do something for them if they just got lucky. And this story actually hinges on superstition. You see, there was a legend about the pool of Bethesda. Some of you know that. This pool of water, every once in a while, legend said, an angel would stir the water. It would disturb it. There, it would be clear and calm, but all of a sudden there would be some disturbance in the water. And the legend said the first person in would be healed by that angel. This pool had been excavated several years ago, and they discovered that there's actually a natural spring at the bottom of it. 
So what probably happened often in that pool was that occasionally the spring would bubble up from the bottom and it would, you know, disrupt the surface of the water and there would be this rush to get in, assuming that this angel has just now disrupted the calm of the pool of Bethesda. The first one in, he or she got healed. And Jesus walks right into this, this place, and it's an odd place. This was a place that healthy people avoided like the plague because it was a lot like the plague. I mean, you can only imagine the smell on a hot day. People, would, people were brought in there, and they would just lay there day in and day out. Sometimes they would lay there for days on end. Some were left there for weeks on end. And I can imagine that in an area like that, that there would be a public official periodically who would do a walkthrough just to check and make sure there weren't bodies there decomposing. You can only imagine, right? And yet Jesus walks right in to the pool of Bethesda. Average people, normal people, healthy people, they stayed away from there unless they had a loved one there. But Jesus walks in. And it says in verse 5, one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. There's a guy here who's been paralyzed. He's been incapacitated for 38 years. Verse 6 says, when Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked, he asked him, do you want to get well? That's kind of a funny question, really, if you think about it. We'll talk about that in just a moment. This, This particular individual Jesus takes notice of. And he asks, he asks about him. He learns about him. And it's here that Jesus decides that this is the opportunity for another sign. A sign that would point to who he truly is. Jesus asks what seems probably to me and maybe to you a silly question. These people are all around here, right? Hoping to to jump in the pool at a time when an angel could heal them. And he asks them, do you want to be healed? Do you want to get well? He leans down to this guy, probably whispered it. He didn't want other people to hear him. And he just asked, do you want to get well? Do you? Do you want to get well? That's a great question. It's a question I want to ask you. Do you want to get well? Some complain about being ill but haven't done what it takes to get well. Because sometimes getting well is harder than staying sick, isn't it? We should all answer this question on a personal level. And I'm not just talking about physical health. Do you want to get well? For sometimes it's not physical. Instead, It's you'd love to be set free from a habit that you have or an addiction or a sin. Is the reason that you haven't gotten well because you're not willing to pay the price or do what it takes to get well? Because sometimes staying sick or staying in a habit or an addiction or staying with your favorite sin is just easier than getting help. Because I'd have to tell somebody if I need help. I haven't been able to whip it on my own. I'd have to tell somebody, and then I'd be ashamed or embarrassed or, or worse. 
This is a powerful question that Jesus asks. Do you want to get well? And here's the thing. If you have the capacity and the potential and the resources and you live in a world, and you do, you live in a world where you can get well, as someone who is made in the image of God, you honor God, you honor yourself, and you honor those who love you when you will take steps to get help in order to get well. And I want to challenge some of you to do that today. I'll be down here at the end of the service. I'll stay as long as I need to to talk with you. If you're that person who just has that habit, you can't break. You're addicted. You're overwhelmed. Sin is consuming you. And you need to be set free from it. Take that step. It's easier. It's easier to stay sick than it is to get well. But life being well, so much better. Jesus decides not to impose his own you know, will on this guy, his own thoughts, his own behavior. He, he goes to this guy, and he just doesn't assume he wants to get healed. So he says, do you want to get well? And surprisingly, this guy is very excited about getting well. He wants to get well. But he has no idea. He has no idea what, is, what he is in store for. He has no idea he's talking to Jesus. He's just looking at this guy. It's the son of God. He's looking at him in his eyes. He's just saying, do you want to get well? And he's looking at this guy. He's like, yeah, I do. And, but he has no idea who this guy is. Verse 7 says, sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. He thinks Jesus may be there or maybe one of his guys is going to sit with this guy and help him get into the pool when the water is stirred. Or maybe they'll hang out for a few hours anyway and, and just see if the angel does. And they'll all get this guy. They'll, they'll block everyone else, but they'll get this guy in. He's thinking maybe that's the way this is going to go down. We don't know. The water moves. Think about how horrible this is. The water moves. There is this crazy scramble to get in. You know, somebody's trying to roll in. Another person's got a friend pushing them in. All of this. And eventually somebody gets into the water. And they just go straight down. Because they're infirmed. And this is superstition. Nobody's getting healed here. I imagine on occasion people drowned here. These people are so desperate, though, they will put their entire life in the hands of a myth or a legend. Superstition. They had dealt with so much. How could this be any worse? Why not take the chance? What if it worked? Jesus is kneeling down to this guy, and he says, get up. Which is kind of cool in the... Uh, in the Greeks, it's translated several different ways. Get up, wake up, rise up, or come to life. Jesus says to this guy, come to life. He has no idea that his life is about ready to change. What he said next is what made this a sign. It was a miracle, yes. But there was something significant about this miracle, about when it happened. It says, then Jesus said to him, verse 8, get up, pick up your mat, and walk. And that's important. Pick up your mat and walk. 
As John writes, he's remembering this moment. I'm sure he's reminiscing as he thinks about this because he was there. And we read in verse 9, at once the man was cured. He picked up his mat and walked. First time in nearly four decades. Jesus spoke, and immediately this man was cured. He stood up, he picked up his mat, and he's walking around. He turns around to thank Jesus, but we find out later in the text that Jesus just kind of slipped away into the crowd. Here's the key point. Don't miss this. Asking this man to pick up his mat and walk. He could have healed him, but he asked him to pick up his mat and walk. It stirred up a hornet's nest on purpose. Jesus did this intentionally because, as verse 9 says, the day on which this took place was a Sabbath. On the Sabbath, in the areas around the temple, the Pharisees are walking around making sure nobody's violating the laws of the Sabbath. And interestingly enough, the pool of Bethesda is right next to the temple. And so you see these Pharisees, and they're walking around, and they see this man approaching the temple carrying his mat, and he's walking right at them because they're between him and the temple. And he's going there to give thanks to God because he's just experienced a miracle. He can hear the music, and he sees the crowds, and he's moving toward them. He wants this to take full advantage of this opportunity to give thanks to God. Verse 10 says, And so the Jewish leaders said to the man who had been healed, it is the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. The law forbids you to carry your mat. But actually, the law didn't forbid it at all. Their tradition forbid him from carrying his mat. It's called the tradition of the elders, or what is some call the oral Torah. The theory was this, that when Moses went up on Mount Sinai and met with God, he came down with the written Torah. That was the, the Ten Commandments, the law. But he also, tradition says, he also came down with an oral law. And Moses passed that on to Joshua, who passed it on to the judges, who passed it on to the prophets, who eventually got, it got to the Pharisees of the first century. And so the Pharisees had all these extra rules. They were part of this oral law, and it served like a fence around the written law to protect it so nobody would disobey the written law. But in their minds, the oral law had the same authority, the same authority as the written Torah, in the oral law, there were 39 categories of things. Not 39 things, 39 categories of things that you couldn't do on the Sabbath with regard to just one law. 39 categories. And one of those categories, one of those things, you could not carry something from one place to the next. And guess what? Carrying your mat was frowned upon yeah. So in their mind, the Pharisees, they see this guy approaching the temple carrying his mat. He is violating the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. He's not keeping it holy. He's violating it. The point of the fourth commandment, though, is this. To take a break from labor, not take a break from love or compassion. This is what happens. All kinds, all kinds of religious people they forget the reason or they ignore the reason in the text. To be more specific, 
This is what happens when we're defending a theological position or system or an ideology or a political agenda. This is what happens when we're embracing any of these things and it becomes more important than the people that these things are designed to serve and benefit. It's like the policies are more important than the people. If that happens, something seems to be wrong with the policies. And that's what happened with the law. They had extrapolated it out to encompass all of these oral traditions. Oh, the law at the center was still right. But all of this now seemed to wound and hurt and mistreat people. We need to be very careful because when what's best for people is no longer what's most important to us, we may find ourselves at odds with God. And the reason I can say that is because John, who's the one who's bringing this story, is also the person who tells us what Jesus explained in John 3.16. For God so loved the world. He loved Jews. He loved Gentiles. He loved Every race, every man, every woman, every child, every generation, he loved them all. He loved them so much, he said, that he sent his one and only son. John would have said, my rabbi, my savior, my friend. He sent Jesus to pay for the sins of all mankind so that they could be reconnected to God. That, my friends, is a Polaroid snapshot of love. If you just take John 3.16, you have, you have the definition of love. Never forget that. Never forget that. So the story continues. They said to this man who'd been healed, he's, he's walking on air. He's walking, which is a miracle in itself. But you can imagine, his feet are barely touching the ground. But he's walking on air on the Sabbath. And the law forbids you to carry your mat on the Sabbath, or at least the oral tradition. And he replies, he may still have the mat on his shoulder. My sense is he's afraid. Remember, he's superstitious anyway. If, if he says, pick up your mat, if I put it down, do I lose the function of my legs? Did you get it? I'm just going to carry this around until I'm totally exhausted, right? He's carrying it around. He's kind of getting his legs back. He's not walked in almost four decades. And verse 11 says, but he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. He's saying the reason I picked up my mat and walked wasn't to violate the Sabbath. So don't even think that that was the case. You don't even really know much about me because I've been out of circulation for a long time. You don't know who I am or where I've been. The reason I picked up my mat was because this man came along and he told me, pick it up. And I just want you to know, I complied with this guy who chose to heal me. When none of you guys have even noticed me for the last 40 plus, 40 years, 38 years. You've been ignoring me my whole life. And on top of that, you've been condemning me and telling me I deserve to lay there for 38 years because either I sinned or my parents sinned. That's what you've been telling me, that I got what I deserved. And if you're right, I was getting what I deserved, if you're right. 
But this guy came along and gave me then what I didn't deserve. And you know what? He said, pick up your mat and walk, and if he's going to heal me, I'm going to do just that. And that's why I picked up my mat. And that's why I'm walking with it. Now, he raises a question here. Who sinned, this man or his parents? Which is kind of an interesting question. We don't ask that question in this culture. Not this first century church culture, or the 20th century church, 21st. You know where I'm talking about, right? <laughs> I lost an hour of sleep. Some of you know you just got here, okay? Thinking, when did the service start? What is going on? This is weird. They started early. That's crazy. The religious leaders of that day thought that if you're going to be paralyzed or in, in, an invalid like this guy was, surely, surely somebody had sinned. And so the question was, was it this guy who sinned or was it his parents? And so this guy spent his whole life under this religious system that had convinced him that he's lying there because somebody sinned. And he has probably spent the better part of 38 years racking his brain trying to figure out, who did this? Was it my parents or was it me? And if it was me, when? When did I do something to deserve this? So some guy comes along and he sort of ignores all of that religious system and he just healed him. So he did that and then this infirmed guy decides he's going to do what this guy asked him to do. None of that other stuff seems to matter. Verse 12, so they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick up, pick it up and walk? Because see, now, now they've got another offender here. This guy is healing on the Sabbath. Now, get this. They missed the fact that he healed a dude, right? I'd be going, what? Are you legit? He goes, dude, you saw me. Look at this. Yada, da, 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 da. You know, and I'm like, where is this guy? We shouldn't condemn him. We should give him a medal, right? We should make him mayor or head of the temple or something. That's amazing, but that's not what these guys do. Look what he says, verse 13. The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that, that was there. This guy goes to the temple, though, and it's there Jesus comes up to him. Look at verse 14. The first part says, Later Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, See, you're well again. I'll, this is going to get, this, I think this is funny. I don't know that everybody thinks it's funny, but I think there's a funny thing that's going to happen here. This guy turns around, probably still carrying his mat, right? Right? He's maybe even in the temple. You could not, get, there's not enough dynamite in Jerusalem to blast the, the mat out of this guy's arm, right? So he turns around and he's talking, and there's Jesus, and he's like, yes, that's, that's the guy, right? That's him, right? We're the religious leaders when you need them, right? But they're not there. And so he has this conversation. Jesus says to him, stop sinning. And he's like, what? Stop sinning. This is where I think it's kind of funny. Because he says, stop sinning. You better stop carrying that mat around. Because that's a real evil thing you're doing. How benign is that, right? Now, I don't think Jesus said it like that. This kind of, in my head, the way I would say it, was like, dude, you should put the mat down because the religious cats are really upset. 
But Jesus looks at him and he says, you should put the mat down because something worse is going to happen to you. And there's a little bit of irony in that. Do you sense it? He was healed. He's carrying his mat. And these guys are all upset over the fact that he's carrying a mat. And they haven't said one thing about how awesome it was that he was healed. And Jesus just points out their version might get you in further trouble if you keep going this direction, right? Here's the thing. Not only was this guy not doing anything wrong in that moment, carrying the mat. Oh, he violated the oral Torah, yes. But he wasn't violating the Old Testament law. He hadn't done anything, if you think about it, for 38 years, except lay there at the pool of Bethesda. He's being accused of sinning. This is a joke. There's no sin in this guy. He's filled with exuberance. He wants to go to the temple to praise and worship God. It seems like Jesus is poking fun when he says, stop sinning, or they're going to come after you, and something worse may happen to you. Hey, this guy hasn't been to the temple in almost four decades, so how can you punish him? All he's been doing is laying there, paralyzed. Listen, I think there's a punchline in this, and it's simply this. When you recognize who Jesus is, the person who John is testifying to us about, you lose your fear of religion or religious people. I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about a relationship with God. I'm talking about people who weaponize religion. For some people, they never go to church because they're still living under the guilt that they experienced as a small ch child or a young person way back in the past under some kind of religious system. Some of you know. Some of you were set free from that. I've heard your stories. These people can't get past it. They feel so guilty by it. I'm telling you, when you discover who Jesus is, you will lose your fear of religion and religious people. So take John's advice. Follow Jesus. Verse 15, the man went away and told the Jewish leaders that this was Jesus who had made him well. So the man who was healed works his way over and he starts talking to this group of religious leaders and he told them, Jesus is the guy that did this. He's the one. I figured it out. I just saw him. He's here. I just saw him. Verse 16, so because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. What? So he heals a dude. He just did it on the wrong day. If he'd have done it yesterday, this would all be cool, right? Is that what you're saying? Does that make sense to you? Jesus is pointing out the, the contrast here. So because Jesus healed a guy on the Sabbath, he's violated their oral law and their traditions, just like the guy carrying the mat. Verse 17, in his defense, Jesus said to them, my father is always at work, is always at his work, excuse me, to this very day, and I too am working. So in his defense, Jesus said, my father, he's always at work. In fact, my father's working today on the Sabbath. Now, I don't think Jesus said it like that, but there's, this thing is dripping with irony. He is pointing out to these guys that my father, God, is doing this, right? God never takes a day off. 
And some of you need to be reminded of that because you go through things and you feel like you're totally alone, but you are not. God is with you every step of the way. So Jesus is saying, I'm just being like my father, like father, like son. Thank you. That's what he's doing. Verse 18, for this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Okay, it went from persecuting because he healed a guy on the Sabbath to now they want to kill him. Why? Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Who does that? Who thinks that they're like that? Who does this guy think he is? That's a great question. It's a great question. Who does he think he is? John, who would say to every one of us, if you're going to wrestle with anything in my gospel, wrestle with this question, who is Jesus? Because if you find the answer to that, truly find out who he is, it'll change your life. The question is this, who is Jesus? Because that's the beginning. That's what this whole story points to. This is the whole point of the signs that John is recording. That's why Jesus did what he did, so that people could come to an understanding, a conclusion, without Jesus having to force them to believe what he knows the truth to be. He wants them to discover it, so he's giving them plenty of information. And John points out all seven of these signs, very significant. He is not going to force anyone to answer this question the way he wants them to. Jesus is making himself equal with God here. Who would do that? He's not questioning, he's not backing off of that claim. How do you substantiate that, though? Yeah, I'm God's son. <laughs> Healing, you know, here's that, here's that guy, 38 years, you know, doing a jig over here. That's my jig right there, okay? He's, <laughs> is that not enough? Is that not enough? Verse 19, Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. If you want to know what God is really like, Jesus says, it's very simple. Just watch me. Watch me. This is why the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and of course this Gospel, John, are so important to us. In our world that is filled with all kinds of political and moral and religious and ideological discourse and disagreement and argument, all kinds of ideas and assumptions, all kinds of tensions and frustrations, God made it simple. He made it easy. He showed up, he spoke up, and he was crystal clear. The message was he was truly the Messiah, the Son of God. Here's what I want to leave with you, especially if you're a follower of Christ. I want you to do a little inventory in your own life. Here's the question. Does your version of religion or politics or ideology or worldview or whatever get in the way of loving people that God loves? Is the way you live your life, the way you've kind of charted your life out, maybe it's even your faith position, does it get in the way of loving people that God loves? Let me take it a step further for those of you who are Christians. Does your version of Christianity get in the way of loving people who God loves? 
Have you weaponized Scripture in such a way that sometimes you hurt people with it? You say, well, it's the truth. Um, I always thought we were supposed to share the truth in love. The truth is hard sometimes. I'm not going to kid you. People sit in my office and do not agree with what the Bible says. But I will promise you, I will love them. Even when they aren't so lovable. Um, and they're not in love with what I've said or what the Bible has said. Does your version of Christianity get in the way of loving people who God loves? Because if it does, you have the wrong version. And here's why I know that. Because in John, 1 John, a letter John would write later, he says simply this, God is love. So if what we're doing isn't, isn't based in the love of God, then there may be something wrong with what we're doing. And we might need to step back and recalibrate or reevaluate it. So when you get on the wrong side of love, you are on the wrong side of God because John would tell you God is love. Jesus came to show you how to get this life right. And we're all a work in progress, aren't we? From myself all the way across this stage to everybody in this room, all across the Commonwealth. We're all a work in progress. But when you don't get it right, Jesus said he would pay for the sins that you committed when you were not getting it right. Can anybody say amen to that? <laughs> yeah, thanks. So it makes sense to do what John suggests. Follow Jesus. Follow Jesus. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for uh, Time Change Sunday. <laughs> it's a tough Sunday, Lord, because people go, what happened to that extra hour? And the truth is, God, it's always a sweet, sweet moment when we spend time together worshiping you. I'm so grateful for these men and women on this stage behind me. God, will you bless them as they lead us in worship? So thankful for that. Lord, the longer that we study your word, the more we realize that Jesus gives people what they don't deserve, not what they do deserve. Jesus has offered us grace and he paid a significant price to, to make that possible. And it is possible for, because of Jesus that we can have our sins washed away. We can have a relationship with you, Lord. And we'll spend eternity with you in heaven. And if there is one person here this morning, Lord, or maybe more, who've never put their faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, I would encourage them to do that today, but not because I told them to. Not because it would make their mom and dad happy or their grandmother happy or a Sunday school teacher happy, but because they saw the evidence that John and the other gospels have given us. And they were convinced that he truly was not an ordinary man, but he was the son of God. 